we're going to be looking at these verses in connection to what we talked about last week. So we're going to be talking about the discipline of God. We serve a relational God. And, and just I want to preface before we dive into the text, because it is a, a brief text, but there's a lot there. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody this week who said, how do we know? We're talking about this guy that we just prayed for, Ahmed. And I see Katie Cloys is here, and we're excited to have you. She's been over there serving. Um, and so you're, you're home now, right? Like you're, you're, you did two years. You're home for six months. Okay. So um, when I think about um, what God's doing in, in, in some place like that, uh, and we have conversations often with students where they'll say, how do we know, and I want you to listen, church, how do we know that our faith is the one true way? How do we know that Jesus is the one and only way? And that, there's a lot to unpack there. We could start by saying, well, Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way to come to the Father except through me, or there's no salvation apart from me. We could go to the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples where he said, who, who do people say that I am? And there were different answers. Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say this, some people say that. And he says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you're the Christ, the, the one true um, Messiah. And, and what we do with Jesus determines so much about who we are and, and the direction that we're going to go. But um, So we could go down that path. We could say, what did Jesus say? Jesus claimed to be God. And so to reject Jesus' claims about himself, we have to reject Jesus. You cannot accept part of someone's self-revelation. Like, I, I can't say to you, I, I think you're kind of honest. Like, what kind of relationship can we have? Am I right? Like, what, what kind of friendship can we have? Because relationships are built on trust. So if Jesus says things like, I am God, I am the son of man that Daniel prophesied. I am the fulfillment of the law. I am the one the prophets wrote about. I am God. <laughs> like, and then you go, well, you know what, though? But there has to be other ways. You cannot partially accept Jesus, right? We can't partially accept Jesus. So when we wrestle with, you know, what do we do with other faiths and other faith claims and other belief systems that describe God to be something other than what the Bible, we believe the Bible teaches. What, what I think is important is to come to a place where we see the way God interacts with his people relationally. The way that God interacts with us relationally is so powerful in what we saw last week in that text. To care enough to discipline so that someone might be shaped and strengthened and grown into something greater something better in the in the christian context something holy that's the greatest picture of god that ever could be painted no other system does that no other system does that and if you do a, if you do a quick study of comparative world religions which i would add darwinian evolution and modern new atheism and any form of agnosticism are their own religious systems because they they seek to answer the worldview questions so belief system religious system whatever you want to call it 
The Judeo-Christian ethic and the gospel of Jesus Christ that's revealed through Scripture is the only thing that's ever been given to us in which man interacts with God through a work of reconciliation by which God has drawn man into relationship. And because of that, the disciplining hand of God is an act of love. I hope you saw that last week. It's something beautiful and powerful and wonderful. And if you grew up in a situation where you got uh, you know, physically abused or you were, or some of you were spoiled probably, and I don't know, like so we've all been around that kid at the restaurant, you know, like I know what would fix what's going on at that table right now, you know, like, um, but like whatever your, your experience and your interaction with discipline was, God disciplines us because he loves us. He chastens us as, as a part of the relationship that we're in with him. And it's, in that sense, discipline is a type of apologetic. It's a form of, of defending the faith that we have. We don't serve an empty God. We don't, we don't say prayers to an empty space. We are in relationship, knit together by the Spirit of God, bound to God by His Holy Spirit. And I would say this before we dive into these five verses. One aspect that I want to point out about the disciplining hand of God is God often disciplines us in a preventative way by the conviction that he brings by his Holy Spirit. If you've ever had a, experienced an afflicted conscience where you go, I don't, I, where you're on a path, you're on a trajectory, it could be you're about to make a decision, you're about to go into a relationship, you're about to, to, to make a business decision, you're about to make a personal moral decision, and you feel an unrest and literally an afflicted and conflicted conscience, that's a form of discipline. That's God removing peace in that moment from you. The God who promises to give us peace will disrupt our conscience. That's different than struggling with anxiety or anxiousness. God's not making you anxious like, oh man, when dad gets home, what's that gonna look like? I dread my father coming. It's no, it's God saying, I'm gonna conflict your conscience so that you cannot be at peace with this decision. It's, it's God turning us before we go down that path. That's a, that's a preventative aspect of discipline. And then there's the corrective aspect where God says, you've gone down this path in, in contradiction to what my word says or what I'm speaking to you. And so there sometimes are consequences, but the consequences are always for correction. And so we dive into it. I wanna, we're, we're, we're in verses uh, 12 through 17, but I, I do want to the first word in verse 12 is the word therefore, and so we have to connect that to the previous thought uh, rather than the previous text from last week. I just want to go back one verse and catch verse 11 that says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You ever hear that? Any of you that grew up getting whooped? You ever get that thing, uh, this hurts me more than it hurts you? I'm so glad my dad never said that. My dad would literally say to me, I ain't gonna lie, this is gonna hurt. <laughs> I appreciate that now looking back, you know. But, but it's, it's painful in the moment. All discipline is painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I wanna, I wanna take a minute, and we're gonna read down through verse uh, 17. And in verse 16, we're given the example of Esau who took what was, what was pleasurable in the moment and gave away what would provide lasting long-term peace and stability. And in verse 11, 
discipline of the Lord is doing the opposite. It's unpleasant in the moment, but the lasting impact is one of stability and peacefulness and growth. And so I think that's important as we, as we unpack that. For the moment, it's painful, but it's not painful without purpose. It's painful with purpose. That's the way discipline works. The purpose of discipline is not revenge. It's not retribution. It's not restitution. The purpose of discipline is to restore, to reconcile, and to renew. In one sense, I think it's like a reset. You ever see a, maybe as if, you've, if you've parented, you've had a toddler or a small child, and you're like, we just need a reset. That could be a nap. It could be, let's get home. It could, but we need a reset. Sometimes you just need a reset. Sometimes the purpose of God's discipline is a reset. But here in verse 11, in verse 11 we've seen that there's a greater theological component to discipline, a greater theological component to discipline. Or we might say a greater discipleship component, and that is that the role of discipline in our lives is playing in the process of sanctification. So God uses discipline to grow and shape us more into the image of Jesus. The Lord is constantly doing this. And in verse 11, it says that that the way that it words it is it says that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, verse 12, therefore, so based on that, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. I, I can't help but personalize a little bit when I read that. I think, about, I think about the posture that's being described in one sense. And one of the things we constantly are, in, in student ministry, we're trying to say to young men, you know, teach them how to present themselves and how to make eye contact and how to don't mope and don't, you know, slump your shoulders and, and, and don't like, I, I kind of, in my mind, I almost feel like the Lord's saying, hey, like present yourself as a child of God, recognize who you are, no, you know, know, know that the defining characteristic of your identity is that you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that should, that should be evident, but, but the, the reality is the writer is going into a bit of an athletic, an, an, another sort of like sports analogy, at least that's what the commentators seem to agree on. He says, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. There's this idea that, that because of the disciplining hand of God, when we respond to that discipline, it puts us on a straight path where there's less chance of something happening that could cause further pain or disruption. This is one of the things that's so important about discipline, I think, is that the purpose of discipline in correction, when, when we receive that correction from the Lord, it's, it's to help us walk the path more effectively, to grow, to be stronger, to be more assured of the love that God has for us, to be more sure of our footing. But when we deviate, like when we move off of the path of obedience, there's the danger of being lamed or, or I think of that picture of lameness as being, you know, we've recently studied Genesis of all those years that, J that Jacob walked with that limp from wrestling with God. But when you step off of God's path, the, the psalmist said, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And he says, I'll hide your word in my heart to keep me from sinning against you. So we, we're, we're given this path. And so he's saying, discipline, the discipline of the Lord 
the preventative, think about the preventative discipline of the Lord is that guiding presence and power of the Lord that keeps me on a disciplined path. But then the corrective hand of discipline is that when I step off of that path, it's what puts me back on that path. Because the longer I walk on that uneven path as a believer, the longer the opportunity is for me to be spiritually, emotionally, or f- even physically wounded. So he's, a, he's painting a picture to stay on that path. And, and, and like I said, it seems that commentators all agree this is the idea of, this ties with the idea of running the race. Back in, remember last, uh, two weeks ago in, in the beginning of chapter 12, if you look back up uh, to verse 2, actually let's just read the first two verses. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the idea is that as I'm, as I'm on this path, I'm running this race and the discipline hand, the disciplinary hand of God keeps me on that path so that I don't come off of that path. So I'm fixed on Jesus. Uh, Jesus would use the analogy, no man who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is, is, is worthy of the kingdom of God. I, I, the, I, I've tried this. I tried to mow. I don't plow. So I tried this on the mower. I try to mow with the zero turn. Them suckers are sensitive, you know. Imagine always that I'm flying a, hel- a Black Hawk helicopter when I'm on that because I'm still 10 years old, you know. And, but I'm, drive, I'm driving that mower. I'm going to keep that. And then, like, what happens if I look back? Can I, I just try to imagine, and I can never keep it straight for very long. You know, it's that idea that we have to look ahead. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and we run the race that's in front of us. These words in, uh, in verses 12 and 13 are taken from Isaiah 35, verse 3. Um, and those were words that were spoken by God to encourage the exiled Israelites. I want to read that, Isaiah chapter 35. I want to jump over there for a second. And I want to read this. Now, the context that God was speaking to the Israelites here is you got a nation of people who had all the promises that God had made to them, but because of their disobedience, this is, this is another, we could go down this other path where um, because of their disobedience, they are living under the consequences of their own sin. And there's a tension when it comes to the discipline of God that God, for those of us that are Christians, let me think how to word this. Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means there's no condemnatory judgment. So as a child of God who's been washed in the blood of Jesus, we've, we've been clothed in the cloaked righteousness of Jesus. We've been given the Holy Spirit in our heart, in our mind, in our soul. We've been, we've been imprinted with the hand of God. The Spirit of God has sealed us. The Spirit of God indwells us. We've been given, 1 Corinthians 2, the mind of Christ. We've been given the righteousness of Christ. So we don't have to worry about condemnatory judgment. In other words, God's not going to condemn us to hell. God's, God's economy doesn't work where it's like, well, you made a mistake, so I'm going to revoke part of my grace. Discipline doesn't work that way. What happens, though, is sometimes we have to live out the grace of God differently 
meaning we have to deal with the consequences of sin. We have to live with the consequences of sin. I have to live with the consequences of my actions. But I can do that knowing that God's grace is still with me. God's spirit abides in me. God's word is real for me. The mind of Christ is present in me. The, the righteousness of God is the righteousness that I've received. But there are consequences. As a Christian, can we agree? Would you agree? You don't have to amen or raise your hand. I mean, we're, we're, we're this close to being a Presbyterian church. The, the, we're so quiet in here. But <laughs> you guys should see what it looks like from right here. It's intense. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll tell you who I look at from time to time. Josh Fording. I feel like that's my happy face. Like, I get, we get, I'm, okay, I'm good. All right, here we go. So, so can we agree there are times where you know you're a child of God, but you have to live with the consequences of your sin and action. It's just reality, man. Just reality. But some of us have a stunted view of God's grace where we think, where we think like Judah, when Joseph is interacting with Judah, and Judah says, well, we didn't commit this crime but there's something else we did way back there and I guess God's going to judge us for that now God's economy doesn't work like that God's grace is never revoked his like like his salvation is not revoked but sometimes we live with the consequences of our sin let's think of some examples David after Bathsheba do we see lingering consequences for the rest of his life yes how about the moment when Paul this is a beautiful picture of God's, of, of like the consequences of one's actions. Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary trip in the book of Acts. And there's a guy named John Mark that's with them. And he's Barnabas' nephew. And John Mark, he, he quits the team. He creates some problems. He gets basically, he gets out of the will of God is what it looks like. Well, so he quits. Well, then later he wants to come back on the team. And Paul says, no, he can't come back on the team. And Barnabas is like, hey, bro, where's the grace? What, are you going to just be judgmental? I'm not being judgmental. I forgive him, but he can't be on the team because he can't be trusted. And we're getting ready to go through a re really difficult region and a difficult season of ministry. And I cannot trust him to be on the team. And I'm not going to babysit him. And it's not, he, needs to, he needs to go grow up. And so John Mark has to go. go and Barnabas goes with him. And there's like, it's the it's, it's, a, it's a conflict that happens that splits a team. But later we see that God's hand was guiding the whole process because Paul writes to Timothy when Paul is about to be executed and he says, send me John Mark. He's useful to me for ministry. So what happened in, the, in those years between those two events is that John Mark lived with the consequences of his, of his own actions, but he humbled himself. And Peter would write, when you humble yourself under the hand of God, he exalts you. So our responsibility is when we are dealing with the disciplining hand of God, the corrective hand of God, or we're living with the consequences of our own actions to know God's grace is still sufficient and he'll grow me even when I've been disobedient, even when I'm having to live with consequences. He'll still grow me. It's one of the, it's, it's, so in Isaiah 35, God is speaking to the Israelites who are living out as a people the consequences of their own actions. They have rejected the lordship of God. They've rejected the sovereign position that God holds over them. And they've chased after false gods and idols and experiences. 
And so as a result, they've been carried into exile. They, they are living as slaves and exiles under the dominion of another nation. And so God comes and speaks to them. And this is, this is where the writer of Hebrews is quoting from. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. What's, he say, what's God saying to the people of Israel through Isaiah? He's saying, you're living with the consequences of your action, but the promises of God are still true for you. And what he's promising to them is that the exile will end. There's an end to this. The Lord is going to come and deliver you from this. We might say in our context, we're still looking forward to the coming of God, uh, and to the second coming of Christ. We're still looking forward to an eternal kingdom that will never end where there's no back pain, you know, where there's no, there's no like, your car ain't going to break down, right? The police ain't going to do a traffic stop and find out that your thing's expired. You're not going to go, nobody's going to go hungry. There's not going to be any cancer. There's not going to be any divorce. There's not going to be child abuse. Like, that kingdom is coming. And so we have to be reminded we're living in one sense, listen, in a bigger theological framework, we are literally living in a consequential age. We're living in the age of grace under a covenant of grace, but we have to live in a covenant of grace because there's consequences to the original sin that, that disrupted what God had created. So the, like, like the consequence of sin is something that even when I'm walking in fellowship and obedience with God. I can see the consequence of sin. Christians are the only, we're the only people that have an answer for the world's evil. Evil is real because man rejected God's plan and purpose. We're also the only people that have a hope. The hope is in the resurrection that Christ entered into the evil. He entered into the suffering so that he might bring us out of it. It's, it's beautiful. And so the consequence of sin is something that's constantly all around us. Continue. So uh, again, verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which, uh, for, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it, Many become defiled. That, uh, so, so let's stop there and, and let's talk about this. So when, he, when, when the writer says, strive for peace for everyone, okay, we understand that. Jesus said, I mean, I'll bless peacemakers. Like there's blessing, blessed are the peacemakers. And there's, in, within that sermon, uh, Jesus would, would talk about what it, you know, how important it is to be a peacemaker. And as Christians, we are, we are called as much as is possible to live at peace with all people. We have the power to forgive even when someone's not seeking forgiveness. Have you ever felt the power that comes from releasing someone 
from something they've done to you even when they don't want to be released, even when they don't ask forgiveness, even when they don't say, well, you forgive me, I've wronged you. There's something powerful. It, there's something Christ-like when we release someone by forgiving them even when they don't seek that forgiveness. What it does is it releases me from the grip of bitterness. It, un- it unlocks me from the bondage of this other person's sin against me. It sets me free. It's very powerful. So, so we're, we're called to be those who strive for peace. And so the scripture says, as much as it's possible, live at peace with all people. As much as it's possible, within, re- within, within gospel reason, live at peace with all people. So he says we're to strive for. In other words, you're going to have to work at it. That, works, that word strive, that means, you know, you have to work at it. You have to toil and sweat and work at it, strive for peace with everyone. But then he says, for the holiness without, uh, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What's he talking about? What holiness is there that if we don't have it, we won't see the Lord? The holiness that comes from salvation. That, that's another way of saying your sanctification. If a person is not, listen, if a person is not being sanctified, they have not been saved by the grace of God. When, when Paul writes to the Corinthians in all of their insanity and, he's, and he lists just these, this atrocious list of sins and he says, such were some of you. You were this and this and this and this. You were these things, but you were washed. The blood of Jesus washes and cleanses and purifies us from unrighteousness. You were washed and you were sanctified. To be glorified. This is a work that Jesus is doing. We live, we, li- <laughs> we live in a day and age where you can identify as pretty much anything you want to identify as. You want to be a cat? We'll put a litter box in the, in, the, in the break room at work for you. True story in some businesses. Y'all know this. That's insanity. It's insanity. You can just decide you want to be Something you weren't created by God to be? What is that? It's people that don't know the peace of God. That's what it is. You want to, you, you're this and you want to be that. We, but you know what? You know what? The church has already got the market on this. We have people who have been identifying as Christians for 250 years. Who are not Christians. Well, I'm a Christian. Tell me about it. Oh, my grandma. I, didn't, I don't know your grandma. Are we talking about you? You know, like, like well, my, my granddaddy was a preacher. Preacher? <laughs> I don't know your granddaddy. Of course you don't. He died in 76. I'm just saying, he's a preacher. He's, I, I'm a Christian. Like, you know, like we've got this cultural Christianity. It's like st- a static, like a dryer sheet that you get to work and realize it's still hanging on you. Like, oh, that's not good. Like, let me take that off. That's not convenient here, you know. Like, Christ, like, we don't identify as Christians. We are made Christians by the blood of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the indwelling spirit of Jesus, the seal of his spirit on our lives. Like, like that's, so, so if a person is in Christ, what he's saying is the fruit of that is, is going to be evident in the sanctification process. So, so this is what it should look like. If I am truly in Christ... I will not be the same next year as I am right now. It's not possible. There's no biblical model of an unmoving, fruitless Christian. 
what the scripture would say is you're not a Christian. It's like, if you like the same thing right now, you pursuing the same, like, if your desires aren't changing, like, this is, this is hard teaching, y'all. I've been like a couple times n- nauseous thinking about getting up here and saying this. You can't just say I'm a Christian and just like magic happens. When you surrender to Jesus, you confess him as Lord, you receive the substitutionary work. He forgives you, he washes you, he cleanses you, he gives you a new spirit in you, he gives you a new heart, but you will never, ever be the same. And you will never stay in one moment what you were in the previous moment. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians. You will change one degree of glory to the next. It's a degree at a time. It's a degree at a time. That's what he's talking about. When he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, at the end of sanctification... Facing Jesus, face to face. Sanctification always ends in the presence of Jesus. There's no biblical sanctification that stops with me getting off the rails and going somewhere else. God saves you. He's got you. He's conforming you to Jesus. He's making you like Jesus. Sometimes I think some of us need to put our hand on the plow and work a little harder, and some of us need to relax and rest in Jesus. It's somewhere in that tension, you know? The grace of God is that he saves us and we don't earn it. But the reality is the rest of our lives, the process of sanctification costs us everything. Salvation costs you nothing. It's free. But when you receive it from that day forward, it costs you everything. And so he... He pivots toward an example. By the way, sanctification is not the work of your effort. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You know, right? I saw, <laughs> I saw we were at the NOC the other day. Dog people. Some of you are dog people. Bless you. Not, we have more dogs than any residential dwelling should ever have and they're all big but I saw this dog and it's walking y'all seen this I don't know what happened to the little fella but he's walking with his front feet and his back feet are in this rig with two big wheels <laughs> you're running around like he's on a leash the guy and I'm like and I was like no I get it that's me and Jesus right there baby like we're grinding it he's like I got you come on like, like, <laughs> that's sanctification like <laughs> In real time, you know, I was like, I got to grind it out, you know, I got to grind it out. And he's like, I got you, I got you, watch this. He puts the brakes on. Okay, okay, you know, like, like, so it's like there's a tension where you got to work, but you're not working to earn his favor. You're working to bring joy and worship and pleasure and your experience of the relationship, and, and, and we strive to become more like Christ. And he uses this analogy. Esau. He says, uh, no one is, uh, 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And it's, it's, it kind of took me a little while and a lot of conversations with Rob and we worked through this text like, why does he bring Esau up and why does he use the sexually immoral? Like, what's, and the idea is the step-by-step process of sanctification will only be disrupted by the momentary process of feeding the flesh. Like, what Esau does is he trades. Here's the danger with Esau. Let me finish verse 17 and then give closing thoughts here. Because the Esau thing's fascinating. He sold his birthright for a single meal. Sold everything for one meal. I, I think this is where the idea of being hangry came from, you know, like he lost it. Okay, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So in the moment, he caves in to the demands of the flesh. And he gives everything away for what will feed the flesh. Then he feels sorry But we know that biblical repentance is something that the Lord receives. But it says he's seeking repentance, even through tears, what's going on. Well, the reality is he's not getting there. He's not willing to turn and surrender to God. And I went back and read the Esau story. And what's fascinating in the Esau story is Esau went on and did really well in his own power. Remember the interaction with Esau and Jacob? Jacob goes out and he's like, I'm going to give you a bunch of money and donkeys and livestock and I'm going to hook you up. Like, I'm going to pay you back. Like, and Esau's like, I don't need your stuff. In fact, I got more stuff than the inheritance would have provided. I've done well. But he's done well in rebellion. And, I, and the danger, listen, as a pastor in ministry, one of the things I've seen happen so much is, is you're pleading with someone to turn from their sin. And they say, but I'm happy and I'm flourishing and I'm doing well. But that happiness doesn't go deep enough. But they're living up here in the, in, in the surface area of happiness. When what really, the, every one of us, it could be when you're 15 or when you're 65, you're going to come to an existential moment in your life where you realize, I've not filled up the empty space. Esau never filled the empty space. He filled the periphery. He filled the surface. He accumulated wealth. He had stuff. He was comfortable, but at some point, he was an old man with no hope because he never turned in repentance and surrendered to Jesus. He lived for the flesh in the moment, and it was a string of moment after moment after moment. And so I think the contrast is as Christians living under the corrective and disciplinary and sanctifying hand of God, we submit to Christ. We walk, First Thessalonians 4, in verse 3, it says, uh, it's, this is the will of God for you, your holiness, your sanctification. It's God's will. When you're living in the will of God, there's joy. I mean, don't raise your hand. How many of us have been broke as a joke, but happy as you can be because you and Jesus are tight? I've been there like, I got like about 120 interns right now. They're like, uh, oh, there's another way to live. <laughs> Yeah, man, like, but we see, you see, I'm done. I'm going to give a couple of applications and be done. But just thinking, how many of us have also either experienced or seen people that have everything the world could offer them? Did any of you think, I'm not being judgmental, please. This I'm thinking out loud. It's dangerous. As a preacher expositing a passage, you're not supposed to do this. But 
it's such a family here. Did any of you think when those billionaires got in that submarine, why are you doing that? Why, what are you doing? It's empty. Billions don't fill the bottom space of your soul. Jesus does. Christ does. You can chase whatever the world's offering you. You're not going to be happy. So all of this connected to last week's text in verse 11 is because we see the disciplining hand of God, we're assured of sonship. Therefore, walk in obedience and fellowship and relationship, knowing that he's step by step conforming us more into the image of his son. And ultimately, we don't live by the demands of the flesh. and We find peace and happiness and joy through the process of becoming more like Jesus, the process that he's authoring. We keep our eyes on him, walk the path, don't get off on rocky ground stay the course stay the course and walk with Jesus so how do we do it last thought is this I kept it super simple in the application and conclusion keep your eyes on Jesus every day for me a visit the familiar passages of scripture and explore the unfamiliar passages often visit the familiar ones they never it's not like you wear them out it's not like a pair of boots you don't wear them out you can go back to 23rd Psalm one million times and your soul will be nourished. Keep your hand on the plow. There's work to be done. And be aware of how quickly sin can take root. And that root of bitterness is, is a reference back to, I'm out of time, but it's a reference back to a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is talking, God's, God's speaking to the people and he's like, you've been in the wilderness all these years and I've provided for you, I've given you everything you need and now, I mean, your shoes didn't wear out, your clothes didn't wear out, I fed you, everything's good and yet you let discontentment creep in and it sowed a seed of, of sin that sprung up, its root sprung up and produced bitterness and people are bitter towards each other and towards God and discontent and like listen Paul writes to the Philippians and says I found whatever state I'm in to be content and contentment is produced by thanksgiving toward God you get up every day and you give thanks and you will be content and that contentment is powerful and you will grow more and more into the image of Jesus let's pray Lord I pray that you take your word tonight and cultivate it into the the soil of our heart and soul and mind I pray that you would shape us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we thank you for the sacrifice that you made to reconcile man to God. Thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have set us free from sin and death, from the dominion and slavery and shackles of sin. You've brought us out of the domain of darkness and put us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that, Lord Jesus, by your blood, that you would shed that so that we might be free. So, Father, now I pray that you would move in our hearts and lives and draw us into the worship that leads us to sing songs of praise. And then as we go out from here, the worship of obedience and the actions of our lives, that we would not go down the path that Esau went down, who would trade so much for a moment of pleasure that we would live in obedience and, and walk in your truth. We thank you that tonight we'll celebrate baptism and all that it means. We're grateful. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' name.